Good morning, church. Hi. Happy Sunday. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there and all the father figures. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 18, verses 1 to 8, and goes as follows. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you this, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the Lord. Let's all pray together. We're lost without you, God. We're weak. So we need both your presence and your power, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we want all of you here in this time that you would speak to us through your word and that you would pierce our hearts, that you would encourage us where we feel laid low, where you would humble us where we are proud, and that you would give us life where we feel dead. So send your spirit now and glorify yourself in this time. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Questions, questions. We've got a lot of them, don't we? Small ones, big ones, and the kind that only God could possibly answer. Recently, one of my kids asked, when we get to heaven, Dad, will we get to ask Jesus all our questions? The answer, of course, is yes. Can't wait for that day. But I wonder if in heaven... He'll ask us questions, too. The Bible's full of them, after all. Questions that God asks us. Questions he asks to invite us to reflect, to stir us to think, to call us to look in the mirror. Jesus asks questions all the time while teaching his disciples, while speaking to the crowds, while personally engaging a stranger on the roadside. Why are you so afraid? Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? Do you want to get well? Do you love me? Does this offend you? I know you have some questions for Jesus, we all do. 
But lately, have you allowed him to ask some questions of you? Well, we're going to make some room for that to happen. Over the next couple months throughout the summer in a new sermon series that we're calling The Questions of Jesus. Each week we'll be examining one of the questions posed by Jesus in the New Testament. And the first one today comes from Luke chapter 18. And the question is this, will not God bring justice for his chosen ones? Will not God bring justice for his chosen ones? Speaking into a world full of injustice, both in his day while he was on earth and in our day today, Jesus raises this question to issue a simple yet powerful exhortation to every one of us today. Pray for justice and don't give. On June 19, 1865, the Union Army's Major General Gordon Granger, along with the 2,000 troops that he brought with him, arrived in Galveston, Texas to uh, announce, at last, the end of slavery in America. Over two years earlier, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation had been issued declaring all enslaved people, about four million at the time, legally free. And two months earlier, General Robert E. Lee had surrendered, ending the Civil War. But news traveled slow, and resistance ran strong, and Confederate soldiers in Texas continued to fight for their perceived right to own, trade, and enslave brown-skinned human beings. But when General Granger issued General Orders Number 3, as it was called, he not only announced the emancipation of the last enslaved people in the South, he also reaffirmed the unfulfilled promise of equality between former enslavers and the formerly enslaved. As you can imagine, celebration erupted in Galveston that day. As one historian put it, the people didn't feel like they were freed by their enslavers. They felt they had been emancipated by God. Joy and relief was unleashed first, therefore, in churches, where enslaved followers of Christ had found refuge during the worst of times. Then the celebration moved to public spaces, and eventually the holiday known as Juneteenth, a contraction of June and 19th, Juneteenth, came to be celebrated in African-American communities across the country. It has at times been called America's second Independence Day. Some might call it the first. Juneteenth was and is a celebration. A celebration of freedom. A, a celebration of black resistance. A celebration of black perseverance. Historian Annette Gordon-Reed explains 
the difference it has made for her amid the cookouts and the fireworks to remember the significance of Juneteenth for her elders, especially those in her family. She writes, for my great-grandmother, my grandparents, and relatives in their generation, this was the celebration of the freedom of people they had actually known. Slavery was just a blink of an eye away from the years my grandparents and their friends were born. They knew what life could have been but for the Civil War, the Emancipation Proclamation, and General Order Number 3. Although there was a very long way to go before we had full and equal citizenship, we were able to gather together as a family to celebrate. Professor Gordon Reed's final statement there gestures toward a second aspect of Juneteenth that's worth remembering. And that's that Juneteenth beckons not only celebration, but also reflection and even lament. After all, the story of Juneteenth was one of delay and deferral. The delivery of freedom to African Americans months, even years, after it had been enacted. It's also a story of retrenchment and refusal. That same day on the 19th of June in Galveston, mobs attacked. African Americans in the next several decades would see the escalation of racial violence, of lynchings, disenfranchisement, and the reestablishment of the racial caste system under Jim Crow. And that's why theologian J. Cameron Carter wrote these words in reflection around Juneteenth. Juneteenth, he writes, invites us to reflect upon the fact that during the two-and-a-half-year period between Emancipation Day and Juneteenth, there were still some people of color, people of African descent in the United States, who were still in bondage. They were still functioning as slaves, though legally they were free. Juneteenth then was for them a delayed celebration, a delayed enforcement of freedom. It represented a lagging liberation. This time, lag of liberation is a metaphor of what it means to exist in the in-between of freedom, in freedoms now, but not yet. In other words, Juneteenth points to the fact that liberation is not a one-time event. It is an ongoing proclamation and project beckoning us to write the vision of freedom and issue renewed proclamations of freedom now. Juneteenth signifies, he concludes, the fact that freedom and liberation is both behind us and ahead of us. Juneteenth, friends, tells us that black freedom is both yes and yet to come. And this invites us deeper into Jesus' words in Luke 18, which reminds us that in the face of grave and enduring injustice, we must persevere in prayer, that we must pray for justice and not give up. Jesus tells a parable as he often does. It's a fictional story where he tells about a, a wicked judge, an unjust 
official who basically ran a corrupted court system in a certain town. Not only does he have, as we're told, no fear of God, no sense of accountability, he also has no respect for human beings. He's shameless in other words, resistant and slow to the pleas and cries of an authentic victim of injustice. What's remarkable as well is the way that Jesus tells this story. This judge seems to be a little bit of a fragile narcissist as well. You see this in the end of verse 5 when he finally relents. He says, this widow keeps bothering me. I'll see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually, what, come and attack me. The word that he uses there, attack me, actually is a phrase that's used in the context of boxing. He's afraid she's going to give him a black eye. This poor old lady, one of the most vulnerable and marginalized members of this ancient society, and now he's saying he's about to be the victim. This is often how perpetrators of injustice present themselves, is it not? And then there is not only the judge, but also the widow. The widow. She is, of course, first and foremost, a woman who in the ancient world could not even have their testimony count as admissible in ordinary courts. On top of that, however, she was a widow, consistently listed in the Bible as among the most vulnerable, socially speaking, economically speaking, among all the poor in society. She was going there likely because she did not have another advocate, a a next of kin, someone that could actually represent her. She had to go and use her own voice and plead for her own sake, justice having been denied uh, of her again and again and again. Here is this woman who does not give up who bothers this unjust judge, who wears him down with her perseverance, we're told, until he finally gives in and gives her what was due to her. Jesus makes this comparison to God, the true judge, a just judge, and he invites us not to give up in our prayers for justice. It applies, of course, to all kinds of of injustices, personal and corporate, individual and systemic. But on this special occasion, I would submit to you that it seems appropriate to apply this teaching to a particular form of injustice, specifically racial injustice. The way in which even today, there are people among us who are not treated fairly equitably, who are denied not simply rights, but theologically and biblically speaking, what is their due as people made in the image of God? People that are yet marginalized or even interpersonally treated as less than, subject even to daily ways of being pushed out and pushed down. And so it seems important, even urgent, in this day of let's say, racial relative enlightenment, this age of activism activism and action, important for us to hear Jesus to call us, of all things, to pray. To pray for racial injustice and to persevere 
in prayer. Listen, yes, there is much work to do with our hands. Much to do. The work of truth-telling and education. The work of economic and political liberation. The work of friendship building and reconciliation. The work of generational healing and reparation. But beloved, we must never forget the indispensable work of prayer concerning matters of injustice. Because who else are you going to turn to for matters that are that big, that intractable, that out of reach? If we could have solved it with our own human power and wisdom, we would have done so long ago. And so we come on bended knee with pleas, asking God to do what only he can do. So do you pray and not just fight, or maybe better, fight in prayer. Crying out to God for justice on behalf of yourself or on behalf of others. Do you pray more than you doom scroll on social media? Pray more than you even perhaps talk to others or vent to others, or even more than weep with others, as important as that is, do you bring your tears to God? You say, well, how do we do this? What does this look like? Two things that we'll look, like, look at briefly that we learn from this parable, from this teaching, and then we'll close. The first question we'll ask and answer is, how must we pray for justice in this fashion? How must we pray, number one, with perseverance? with persistence, we must pray and keep praying. In the face of enduring inequities, in the face of even incidents of prejudice and what many call microaggressions, I know many of you are tired. Whether if it's because you are overwhelmed by the evidence of continuing injustice, and even just simply racial pain. Amazing how quickly our nation has moved on from the terrible Buffalo Massacre, the shameless murder of black image bearers, and now the seeming result of nothing being changed. Many of you are tired because not only of the overwhelm, but also because it's easy to doubt the effectiveness of prayer. Of all things in this moment, it seems foolish to point to prayer as a practical solution to matters at hand. Despite all the promises of scripture that God heeds our prayers, that God actually makes the prayers of righteous persons effective. That prayer moves the heart of God, all these things that the Bible promises us, yet it's easy to shrug and say, but we must, we must do something more real. Beloved, there's nothing more real than to ask the God of heaven to come to earth, and to save and deliver, to rescue and to love. Or perhaps we're tired 
because we feel like there's just maybe too many other urgent things to do. We are, after all, in this generation, in this town in particular, a doing people. Uh, we feel we are, need to busy ourselves about the, the work of justice. And of course, as I said, there's much work to be done. But don't we know that even that work, no matter how sincere, no matter how well thought out and strategized, is powerless apart from the power of the Holy Spirit? Do we believe this? We must pray with persistence, as the widow did, crying out day and night. In fact, this was the exhortation of Reverend Francis Grimke, an African-American pastor of 15th Street Presbyterian Church down the way here in Washington, D.C. He ministered in this area during the Jim Crow era. Indeed, when violence like lynchings across the country were at its peak. Oh, Reverend, can you give us something practical to do, something we must do about this? He once preached, we must pray. Pray, he said, yes, let us pray without ceasing that God, he preached, would help us with his own great might to resist with all the energy of our natures this thing which stands in the way of our progress, referring to the scourge of racism in America. We must pray with persistence day and night. And secondly, Jesus tells us we must pray with faith. We see the word in verse 8, as Jesus looks ahead to the day in which he will make all things new, and he, using his favorite Old Testament nickname for himself, the Son of Man, will one day return and sit upon his throne and reign justly over all things and all people. And he said, will I, will he find faith on the earth when the Son of Man comes? Actually, more literally, if you look at the ancient text there, he says, will I find the faith on earth, referring to the faith that's illustrated and modeled by this poor widow. See, prayer is not just a rote religious activity, is it? Jesus isn't telling us just to go through the motions a lot. He's calling us to press into our souls and to lift up to God, not mere words and not even just mere desires, but faith to pray expectantly to the God of righteousness and the God of healing, to pray expectantly to the God who sees, which was the confession of Hagar, one of the most neglected and abused among all Old Testament characters. She said, you are the God who sees me. And if that's true about this God, when you pray, do you believe that he will do in accordance with what he sees? Do you believe that he's still the God of the Exodus who heard the cries of his people and said, I must come down and rescue and deliver? Harriet Tubman, the famed abolitionist leader of the Underground Railroad, once said this in the midst of all her activity in setting people free, when I think of all the groans and tears and prayers I've heard on plantations, she said, and remember that God is a prayer-hearing God, I feel that his time is drawing near. God is a prayer-hearing God. Do you pray like this 
is true. The great theologian from the 5th century, St. Augustine, said this about this particular teaching from Luke 18. Faith pours out prayer. So faith motivates our prayer. And the pouring out of prayer obtains the strengthening of faith. That when you pray itself, it actually encourages and builds up your faith even as you are praying. A wonderful circle and feedback loop, isn't it? And if you've prayed, you know what this is like. You limp into your prayer closet, or maybe just your one eye closed on the metro, right? Your surreptitious metro praying. And you know that it takes faith to set aside that moment to pray. You tell yourself, I believe God hears me. That's faith, even the faith of a mustard seed. I will now pray. And as you pray, you find your heart swelling with encouragement, indeed with courage. Friends, do you want courage in the face of racial injustice? Do you want encouragement to persevere in the face of racial injustice? Then you should pray. As God fills and strengthens your souls and your feeble knees, even as we pray. How must we pray for injustice with persistence first and secondly with faith? But why, secondly, why must we pray so perseveringly for justice. Why was, must we persevere in our prayers for justice? Three quick things and then we are done. Jesus points us, first of all, to the certainty of justice. You can pray because justice is coming. Verse 8, I tell you, God will see that they get justice and quickly. God is not asleep on the job. His patience and endurance and time elapsing faithfulness boggles our minds. We don't understand the mystery of his timing, do we? But God yet promises that justice is certain. I tell you, he will see that they get justice, that you get justice, and quickly. Partially now. Just like he did on that day so many years ago in Galveston, Texas. Justice breaks into earth, here on earth, even as it is in heaven, right? As we pray the Lord's Prayer for God's kingdom to come. Partially now, fully one day. As Jesus points the attention of his disciples forward to the day when the Son of Man returns. To remind us that it's only on that day that justice will fully prevail. It's only on that day when all things will finally be healed. It's only on that day when all evil and sin will be accounted for and extinguished. It's only on that day that Christ, our true judge, will reign and reign forever. But it's coming that day. Jesus encourages us to persevere in pleading with God again and again because he says... Justice is near. Justice 
is certain. Number one, the certainty of justice. Number two, the chosenness of God's people. You see how Jesus refers to his people in verse 7, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? This is a special word, chosen one, that, that the Bible often uses for God's children, those who've been redeemed through Christ, to describe of all the different ways in which God loves us and redeems us, specifically to talk about the unique and specific ways in which he loves us by name. He, he doesn't attach his covenant commitment to us to save us, to deliver us, to enact justice on our behalf in broad and nebulous fashion. No, he calls you by name, he knows you by name, he enacts justice for you by name. Personally and specifically, you are chosen as beloved in his sight. You are not forgotten. You are not forgotten by God. And you know he calls you, therefore, to be his chosen son and chosen daughter, which tells us that in the gospel, what we have is Jesus sharing with us his special sonship status. In other words, he gives us the same title that he has had from all of eternity. Son, child, daughter. That Jesus himself, the Son of God, found the Father's love, his eternal love, a gift not to be hoarded, but to be shared. And he's invited us into his family to be adopted, chosen, adopted into his family. And rather than just sort of like hoarding the family meal to himself, you look around and you see Jesus pulling up more chairs and more chairs to the feast so that there might be more people joining him in this grand feast of love and gospel justice. You see, Jesus is saying, God will bring about justice, especially for those whom he calls his own. And he hears the cries and the prayers of those who are his children. He knows your voice. I mean, friends, consider this, that you, if you are in Christ, have the privileged place of unique, uniquely having access to the ear and the heart and the mind of God and calling him to enact his shalom, his righteousness, and his justice for all people. You've got him on speed dial, to use the old and outdated phrase. You've got a red phone with God. You've got private access to his den, to his inner chambers, to his lap, to his smile, to his joy. This is your God. So will you make use of that gospel privilege and call out to him crying day and night, God, bring down your compassion. God, set your people free. God, have compassion on those that are laid low. God, encourage those who are despairing in the face of oppression. The certainty of justice, the chosenness of God's people, which invite us to persevere in prayer. And finally, and lastly, the character of God. Let me be perfectly clear about how Jesus is using this parable. Jesus is not likening God to this unjust judge. What he is saying by way of comparison is that this 
that, that if this wicked judge, for all his evil, for all his self-centeredness, for all his godlessness and moral indifference, if this wicked judge could be persuaded by the nagging perseverance of one of the most voiceless and vulnerable persons in all the ancient world, how much more will the true judge, the God of righteousness and compassion, be moved to re respond when he hears your voice loud and clear, hears the persistent prayers and pleas of those whom he calls his children? God is passionate to save. He is willing, bursting with zeal. He loves to love those who are laid low. And if we can begin to believe this about God, that he wants to hear our prayers, that he responds to our prayers, that he delights to make things right in this world, then perhaps it will become our joy to be that buzzing voice in his ear. Not long ago, recently, I received a text message from a friend who offered uh, to pray for me and my family, and he was uh, generous with his words, encouraging, and all the different things that he said, but this statement especially moved me nearly to tears when he said, this friend to me, I will go to the Father and plead your case and wear out his ear on your behalf. Will you be that kind of friend? Wearing out the ear of your heavenly Father, whose joy it is to have his ear worn out, He's not walking away saying, will you leave me alone? He's saying, bring it to me some more. Tell me some more that I might act, that I might rescue and save. Be not mistaken in every word that Jesus says here. God is the chief actor. Verse 7, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? God is the chief actor. God is the one who is decisive to the matter. And so we turn to God. This, of course is the very same disposition of the heart of this very same God who sent his own son, Jesus, to bring us into his family, to give us this privileged position to be prayers on behalf of injustice and those who are suffering injustice. You know, because Jesus is the one who willingly subjected himself to unjust judges to a corrupt court system that rendered him guilty when he was not, who sentenced him to death by Roman crucifixion, and yet unbeknownst to them, doing so in order that, by divine mystery, through his death and resurrection, 
he might destroy the power of evil. That he might destroy the powers of injustice. That he might purchase by his own blood, not just lives, but a whole new world of righteousness. A new creation. I mean, what is the efficacy and the power of one's death? That by his death, he alone could wipe out all the sin and evil of the entirety of the world. And by that same power that he could resurrect from those ashes new life and a whole new creation that is even now beginning to break into our world as we see in the midst of the ravages of racism and ravages of death and ravages of evil. Little breakings in of hope life and justice and life and truth. This is the story of the gospel. This Jesus who in his first sermon sort of laying out the program of his entire ministry stood up as we're told several chapters back in the gospel of Luke chapter 4. Quoting from the prophet Isaiah he said the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to captives, and to set the oppressed free. This is your Savior, the one to whom you are invited to pray and to pray and to pray. Will Ford was a pastor and author who several years ago told the story about a 200-year-old black kettle pot that had become an heirloom of sorts in his family. His ancestors that dwelled in Lake Providence, Louisiana. This strange black kettle pot was once used for cooking and washing clothes during the day, and yet it was also secretly used for prayer. And this is what Pastor Ford writes about this kettle. Forbidden to pray by their slave master, my ancestors were beaten unmercifully if found doing so. However, in spite of their master's cruelty and because of their love for Jesus, they prayed anyway. At night, sneaking into a barn, they carried this cast iron cooking pot into their secret prayer meeting. As others looked out, those inside prayed. Turning this pot upside down on the barn floor, they propped it up with rocks, suspending the pot a few inches above the ground. Then, while lying prostrate or kneeling on the ground, they prayed in a whisper underneath the kettle to muffle their voices. The story passed down with the kettle that they were risking their lives to pray for ensuing generations. One day, freedom did come. Beloved, I follow many African-American Christians like Pastor Will Ford in their belief that the emancipatory events of June 19, 1865 was, among other things, a direct answer to the accumulated prayers of the saints. You see, everything that we said that was true about what Jesus taught in Luke 18 emerged true amongst his enslaved people that day. 
And not only their prayers, but the prayers, not only the prayers of those who prayed under the black kettle pot and Pastor Ford's family, but the prayers of many others throughout generations, countless prayers that were raised up in the words of Professor Eric Washington from Calvin University. Juneteenth is an answer to centuries of prayer. It is a recognition that the prayers of the suffering and the oppressed can be answered even if it ultimately takes centuries. The question for us today is that do we believe that that can happen again and again and again and again? At last, God had answered the countless prayers of his suffering children who had cried out to him day and night. Do we believe, friends, that God has laid out before us more moments of racial healing and liberation and wholeness and reconciliation and justice if we will pray, bringing our pleas to him for justice, crying out to God day and night and refusing to give up. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Yes, he will. Let's pray. We ask that you would help us to believe this about you, O oh God. That you are this kind of God. Open wide our hearts to trust in you that we might persevere in prayer like you, whoever lives to pray for us, O oh Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name.